Well, we are uh, on the very last Sunday of our sermon series through uh, Psalm 23, which is a, a beloved psalm, beloved poem, a beloved prayer to many. And uh, hopefully we are walking away from this series with uh, more appreciation for uh, the depth and the riches found here. And hopefully we are walking away uh, having been fed by God's word um, in, in Psalm 23. And so if you want to turn there, we're going to read Psalm 23, and we're going to look at that final line in verse 6. In Psalm 23, the final line of verse 6. In Psalm 23, when you're ready, if you've turned to Psalm 23, you can stand with me as we read God's word out of respect and reverence for God's word. Let's listen with reverence, with joy, with gratitude, with hope, with love, with trust and thanksgiving to the word of our God and King. He says through the pen of the servant David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you illumine your word to us now by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? I pray that you would anoint us, my voice, all of our ears with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit so that we might receive what you have for us here. I pray particularly for me that what I proclaim would be in accordance with your word and in the power of the Spirit, but then also help us, each of us, by the work of the Holy Spirit to grab and to grasp and to hold on to these promises as our own. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, we've been slowly journeying through Psalm 23 over the last almost three months, and perhaps you've noticed this, that we've not only been journeying through this psalm, but the psalm is in itself, in a way, a journey. It speaks of, really, it speaks of David's own story, his own journey. It speaks in vivid metaphors but it's talking about his own personal experience, his own testimony, his own story. He talks about it as as his life is being led beside, or to lay down in green pastures and being led beside still waters to drink. He, He recalls experiences wherein he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He, he describes being a guest in God's house and being fed at his table. This psalm, its design and form, recounts David's story in these kind of vivid metaphors. But like all good journeys, David's story and this psalm's story has a destination in mind. And just like Odysseus, 
was making his way through the Mediterranean world to Ithaca, just like Frodo was making his way through Middle Earth to Mordor, just like the Pavinzi children were searching for Narnia, just like Christian and the Pilgrim's Progress was journeying to the celestial city, just like the Israelites were trekking through the desert to Canaan land, so David is journeying in Psalm 23 by way of green pastures alongside still streams through death's dark valley to his destination. And it's that, that destination that we turn to this morning as we look at the second half of verse six in Psalm 23. David writes about his eternal dwelling place, his eternal destination. He says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he not only speaks of his own eternal dwelling place, but the eternal dwelling place of all those who call the Lord their shepherd. If you belong to Christ this morning, you can be confident that David's God is your God and that David's eternal dwelling is your eternal dwelling. But then sometimes I I fear that we don't dwell on this eternal dwelling enough. And perhaps one of the more obvious characteristics of American Christianity today is is how much it is preoccupied with with present comforts and ease and status, the, the comforts and ease and status of this present age. And how little it is preoccupied with the things of heaven and of life in the age to come. Which is something we we would we would do well to not be satisfied with in and of ourselves. We have to we have to yearn for heaven and life in the age to come more zealously. We ought to anticipate it more actively. We ought to think about it more regularly. And so we would do well to meditate together on David's words this morning and David's hope here in Psalm 23 verse 6. Here we find the big idea that the Christian's home is with God forever. The Christian's home is with God forever. And we're gonna explore that big idea by first looking at the Christian's dwelling where we'll look at, at David's hope and our hope. But secondly, we'll, we'll look at the, the Christian's drive where we'll see how our eternal home motivates our lives now. And then third, the Christian's duty where we'll look at how we ought to prepare for the age to come. First though, we see the Christian's dwelling. David concludes and closes Psalm 23, with this astoundingly wonderful, hope-filled phrase, he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, at first glance, our minds are are likely drawn to the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. That was what was uh, ordinarily called the house of the Lord. The temple hadn't been built yet in David's life, but they had a a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this kind of very elaborate tent, and it was the the center of worship for the Israelites. Can you see this? I know you probably can't read the the paragraphs there, but you can see the the picture. You see the, the courtyard there. That's the kind of outer part of the tabernacle. It's separated from the outside with this fence that goes around it. And you can see toward the front there, that's the bronze altar. That's where they did the, the burnt offerings. And then there's the bronze basin where they did the ceremonial uh, washings. And then you go further in and you actually go into the tabernacle and there are two rooms. The first room uh, is this this room uh, called the holy place. It has uh, the table and it has the... uh, the uh, altar for incense, and it has the golden lamp stand. Uh, and, uh, but then you go further in, and there's this room 
that the Lord specified should be in the shape of an exact cube. And this is called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. And that's where they put the, uh, the um, Ark of the Covenant. And uh, that was the place of the presence of God. That was the most sacred place, the most holy place in history at that point in history. It was, it was, it was the most holy place because that was the place where God dwelled. That's where his special presence dwelled. And it, 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 was, it was a place of God's special presence. It was a fearful place. And so only once a year did one Israelite enter, enter into it, and that was the high priest. He would enter in once a year. To, he would make his way into the Holy of Holies to make atonement and to represent the people of God before the presence of God there himself. So it was a fearful place, but it was also a joyful place. Uh, God's presence to God's people is a joyful reality. Right? It, it, and so while David was not permitted to uh, enter into the Holy of Holies, of course, he, he still longed and desired to be in the tabernacle. He enjoyed being there when he was there. He loved to offer sacrifices of praise. He loved to dwell there, to worship with God's people there, to sing God's praises there. In fact, we might even say that this was David's number one priority in life. He actually says such. In, in Psalm 27, verse four, he says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David was so enthralled with, so happy in, so captivated by the glory of God that it consumed him. It filled his mind. It dominated the thoughts and intentions and desires of his heart. David loved God. He loved to commune with God. He loved to be in God's presence. But then because of that, David looked forward to something beyond that of the tabernacle and temple, didn't he? Notice here that David not only speaks of being in God's house temporarily, but eternally. He says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever forever. David looked forward to being with God in his house forever. Joel Beakey says about this particular verse, he says, David looked forward to something beyond the temple. The house of the Lord on earth was not the ultimate object of David's praise when he exclaimed, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He looked beyond this present world to a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens at 2 Corinthians 5.1. Indeed, part of, what, part of what we need to understand about the tabernacle and the temple is that they were actually models and shadows of a reality much greater than themselves. The author of, of Hebrews in Hebrews 8.1-2 actually calls heaven the true tabernacle. Heaven is the true holy of holies. It's the place of God's presence, the place of his Shekinah glory. It's there that Christ, our great high priest, after the day of ultimate atonement, entered in and represents us before the holy presence of our God. And here's part of what that good news means for you, Christian. Because Christ has made atonement and ascended to heaven. When you die, that's where you go. Your body goes into the ground 
and your spirit departs to heaven to be with the Lord. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.8 actually says that for the Christian to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this ought to be such a cause for joy in us. To be with the Lord. We, we, like David desired and longed for God's presence, we, we ought to long to be with God and to commune with him. We ought to long for the presence of God. That's what makes heaven, heaven. God is there. And it's there that his people get to be with him and enjoy him and enjoy his presence in a more intimate and unhindered way. There's, that's, that we're gonna be free from the world's sorrows and the world's sins there. It's there that God will welcome us in a more profound encounter and experience of his own presence. And as David says to God, in Psalm 16:11, he says, In his presence there's fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. But then being away from our bodies and, and being in heaven with God is actually not the final destination of the Christian. That's, that's a sad mistake that many Christians make, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually teaches that in some respect, both heaven and our earth and earth are, are both our home. And that the final state of the Christian is not on earth as it is now or heaven as it is now, but a new heaven and a new earth. You see, the, the ultimate goal of the biblical narrative is not heaven and earth being separated, but the two becoming one. The ultimate destination of the Christian is body and soul being reunited, resurrected on an earth made completely new by the presence of heaven coming down. The ultimate aim of human history is for the earth to be transformed by heaven, the house of the Lord coming down, the presence of the, of the Lord coming down and making it completely new. That is what David is ultimately looking forward to. This fourth century pastor, your favorite pastor, I'm sure you've read all of his books, Cassador, Cassa, Cassadorus, Cassiodorus, if I could say his name, he said in this particular verse, he said, the house of the Lord here denotes the Jerusalem to come, which continues without uncertainty forever, for it is lasting blessedness and joy without end. And that's what Revelation 21 and 22 describes for us. It's happening at the end of the age. As the Apostle John describes Revelation 21, verse two, he says, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, that's heaven and earth, heaven coming down and becoming one with the earth and making the earth completely new. And from that day forward, he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And you see, John goes on to describe this scene using symbolic language. He describes heaven coming down. But he speaks about it as if it's a building. It's very interesting, peculiar. And he even gives the measurements of the building. And if you look at the measurements, they actually measure out a perfect cube, which is supposed to communicate to the reader that heaven is the holy of holies, the place of the presence of God, but it is now coming down to cover the earth with God's presence as the waters clothe the sea. And that, that new heaven, that new earth, that is the Christian's eternal home. That is our home forever, life with God. 
In the new heaven, the new earth, enjoying life with God in whose presence there's fullness of joy, at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That is what David was looking forward to. That was his eternal dwelling. And Christian, that is your eternal dwelling as well. But now as, as we move on from looking at the Christian's dwelling to the Christian's drive, I, 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 whoopsie, I wonder if if some of us might have a little bit of trouble to, to kind of see the, the relevance of all of this right now, right? I, 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 you very well might be thinking as I'm talking about, about heaven and life in the age to come, you might be thinking like, this guy's tone deaf. So all that's going on right now with the kind of shape that our, our country and our world is in, you're talking about, you know, our country is a mess right now. It's a pandemic, Look around, systemic racism and police brutality and mass incarceration and abortion and riots and sexual immorality and all sorts of things going on. And just say, listen, let's worry about the things right now before we worry about the things to come. Let's work on the things in front of us before we start worrying about things further on down the road. Maybe you've heard or even used the phrase that we Christians shouldn't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. In other words, we shouldn't be so focused on the afterlife and life in the age to come that we fail to serve and act now for the sake of change in this world. But then that, that sounds good. That sounds, you know, very action-oriented. We like that as Americans and sounds very good. But, but if you actually think about it for a few moments, it's, it's utter hogwash. Because it fails to see how how. The world to come is actually what often drives God's people to serve and to seek change in the here and now. Now, C.S. Lewis, he speaks about this in Mere Christianity. He writes, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. He's exactly right. I've been reading a, a book recently by John Owen. It's called Spiritual Mindedness. And, and uh, it's, it's a book about setting your mind on the things of heaven and how to do it and why to do it and all the rest of it. And as I was reading the description of the book on the back, I, I came across something that caught my eye. It says that this book was a favorite of William Wilberforce's. You may not know who he is. There he is. Yeah, he's got those nice rosy cheeks. He's a handsome man. Um, but he was a Christian who lived uh, from about the mid-1700s to the mid-1800s. And, and uh, he was a member of parliament in Britain. And he led Britain into all sorts of social reforms during that time regarding public education and safe working conditions for the working class and alleviating poverty and even instituted laws outlawing cruelty to animals. Uh, but perhaps what he was best known for in history was being the key leader amongst those, those English evangelicals that Lewis was talking about who abolished the slave trade. And this was a lifelong struggle for him 
Throughout his life, he was chronically sick. He was constantly stabbed in the back by other members of parliament again and again. He was jeered and hated and despised by many. But eventually, because of his dogged persistence, after 20 years, Wilberforce's cause won out in England and they abolished the slave trade in 1807. Now, now what, what motivated him? What, what mode, why did he persevere and persist in the midst of such difficulty? I think it's safe to say that at least part of his motivation, part of what drove him was his eternal dwelling. He was a, he was a heavenly-minded man. And how, how you might ask, does, does heavenly-mindedness lead to service and action on, on this earth? Well, for one, it's because if everything the Bible says about the world to come is true, then right now counts forever. If everything the Bible says about life in the age to come is true, then the way we live right now and what we do right now has eternal implications. One day, you will stand before the fearful presence of God and give an account for your life. And if that's true, you don't want to stand before him and tell him you spent a quarter of your life with your face in your phone. You want to tell him that you spent the life he gave you for what counts. You see, the promise of heaven motivates us to not waste our lives now. But then another another potential reason that that the reality of life in the age to come drives us into service and action now is is gratitude. Gratitude, because, because of our gratitude for our eternal dwelling, which is a free gift from God in Christ. We're pleased then to obey God now. When you you realize that all you actually deserve from the God of heaven is divine wrath and judgment and hell for eternity, but you've received forgiveness and freedom in Christ, doesn't that just fill you with a sense of gratitude so that it's actually your joy to serve such a great God? It's such a joy to obey him and to seek to conform this world to what he wills it to be. You were enslaved to sin, but now you've been emancipated as sons and daughters of the one true king, and now you've been joined to the family business of seeing this world reconciled to him and conform to his will as its rightful king. What else could be worth living for? And more could be said, but you see, our eternal dwelling drives us to be a people zealous for God's will here and now. The hereafter is not a hustle. It's the promise of God. And it's part of what drives us as God's people to be effective in this world for the sake of conforming it to his will and seeing people reconciled to him. So lastly, we we turn to see our duty in light of this reality. We've seen how the world to come is the Christian's forever home. We've seen how how this motivates us to Christian obedience here and now, but then what should we do? What should we do then? How then shall we live? Well, first, I would say think often about your eternal home. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above. And again, Lewis said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. We do well to think about our eternal home, the world to come. Read scripture texts about about heaven and life in the age to come. Study them, meditate on them, memorize them. When you find yourself with a few minutes alone, resist that urge to look at Instagram. 
And instead, think about your eternal home. Bring those memorized texts to mind. Look at your Bible app. As Donald Whitney says about this, he says, fixing your thoughts on heaven can be a powerful practice because there's nothing on earth to compare with the beauty, splendor, and joy of that place. Thinking about the greatest, most magnificent, and most alluring of all objects is worth all the time we can devote to it. And next, not only think about it, but live in anticipation of your eternal home. In Hebrews 11.10, the author of Hebrews talks about how Abraham lived in anticipation of his eternal home. Abraham lived as if he were looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. It is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. And this led him to, to follow God's will, to obey God's will, even when he possessed great uncertainty about what would happen in the temporal realm. And likewise, we, we have to order our lives around the things that matter most. But to think about the, the, the content of our conversations, we have to think about the way we spend our time and our money and, 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 and really discern whether or not it truly reflects the reality of our eternal home. Is, is what we're giving ourselves to now going to seem like a worthy investment or a waste of time in the halls of eternity? Will the content of your conversation seem frivolous to you when you meet your Savior face to face and give an account for every word you've spoken? Live in anticipation of your eternal home. Let it shape your calendar, your bank statement, your conversations. Let it shape and rule your life. And then lastly, pursue certainty regarding your eternal home. Remember, David begins verse six with that precious little word, surely. And surely, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David possessed certainty regarding his eternal home, something we would do well to pursue. Possessing such, such certainty will clarify our priorities here and now. It will give us strength to endure life's many sufferings. It will invigorate us to persevere in obedience even in the midst of difficulty. It will remind us that while bearing our crosses may seem fruitless in the here and now, the eternal weight of glory which awaits us will be absolutely worth it. Where does such certainty regarding our eternal home come from? It certainly doesn't come from our own goodness, our own strength, our own efforts to make ourselves worthy of God's love and acceptance. It doesn't come from anything other than this. Christ has perfectly secured your eternal home. As the Apostle John tells us in John 1, 1 and John 1, 14, although Jesus was God and was with God, he left the pleasures and perfections of heaven to come take on flesh and be tabernacled among us. And he took hell upon himself on the cross. He took the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sins so that you and I could receive the pleasure of God's presence forever. So now if we only trust in him and receive him, we are eternally received in the house of the Lord forever. My friends, we don't deserve it, but he deserves it. But he took what we deserve so that we could choose and take what he deserved as our own. And so one day, either when we die or he returns, we will see him and we will be welcomed into his house forever.